So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I walked you through the outlining of what will be the third story in this short story cycle of an untitled sword and sorcery fantasy novel starring Vo, the warrior woman from a distant island whose secret weapon isn't her bloody great big warhammer, it's her capacity to grow as a person. In that last story, Vo learned that just because you're a big tough warrior type person doesn't mean you don't deserve love and care and tenderness. Then she built on that lesson and turned it around to teach her teacher that you don't have to deserve such things, that the concept of deserving is in fact kind of a fake idea, a bit of a thought prison. What does she learn this week? Well, in this, the fourth story, and the second last one in the first sort of act of the whole novel, she will learn about love. <laughs> you gotta say it like that, you can't just say love, you gotta be love, because uh, I am a uh, cis het male who uh, was raised actually by a pretty cool pair of parents, but society definitely got it into me that I need to have a bit of ironic distance between myself and genuine emotion like lava. <laughs> okay, for your sake and mine, I'm just going to say love from this point on. But yes, <laughs> I wanted to give Vo a love story, and I thought a good place to put that would be in this first third where she's doing a lot of her kind of growing up from age 19 to approximately 24. Why a love story? You know, how is this a part of her journey? You know, what's the deal there? Well, how it's a part of her journey, so to speak, uh, her character development over the course of the novel, her growing up, I figured that out after I decided I wanted her to have a love story. So what was my reason? Frankly, I liked the character. I felt, especially because she's younger and learning, kind of coming up, you know, I wanted, I felt like it's part of growing up for most of us, you know, certainly at some point, whether it's uh, just an embarrassing crush or a full on love affair and you spend the rest of your life with that person. Like, it's something we all go through, and it felt a bit weird to omit that from this character, even though sword and sorcery characters, by and large, are not the stars of like romantic stories. Most of the ones I'm familiar with, there might be some love in the story or, or kind of a love interest, but it's never really the centerpiece of the whole thing. Like, you know, it can be a source of tragedy. You love someone, but it can't happen, and or they wind up dying because of your actions. That's a classic one with Elric, Michael Moorcock's albino adventure with Conan. He often has cool, sexy women who, like, join him on adventures, and that's awesome, but they're gone by the next story. Or in some of the lesser tales, unfortunately, the women are just kind of prizes at the end. Uh, again, they're usually gone by the next story. In fact, they are always gone by the next story. I don't know why I'm saying usually. And a pleasant exception to this that nonetheless doesn't tend to put the romance front and center would be my beloved big guy, little guy team, Fafford and Grey Mouser, Fritz Leiber's guys, who do have each of them a daisy chain of intriguing and amusing partners who each bring something special to their lives before leaving until the very last pair of women that they each of them wind up with uh, in their sort of older age in the last two books. But that is, that is, boy, is that the exception. And even there... The women kind of like are woven into their greater adventures. It's not about them falling in love with them. 
So I want to tell a love story, but once I actually get into the meat and potatoes of what the story is about, what happens, etc., can I keep it a love story or does it get twisted into something else? Let's find out. Aside from the whole love angle, what else is there in this story? Well, there's the title of this story, The Boy and the Blacksmith. And you better believe that blacksmith is Vo, who is the daughter of a blacksmith, and in my mind definitely learned some of the trade, didn't become a master, um, before her parents both died and she chose to leave the island and go off and lead a very different life indeed. I saw this story as taking place after Vo leaves the army she's serving in the previous story, Monstrously Slow, and so she's got to make a living. What trade does she know? What can she do that isn't fighting? Well, blacksmithing, right? Okay, cool. So I'm seeing her in this story. We're going to open on it probably with her being a blacksmith in a small community that has perhaps lost their blacksmith recently enough that they still have the workshop and the tools for her to pick up. I enjoy the idea of Vo being a blacksmith for at least a little bit in her adult life, not just because of the connection to her mother and all that kind of thing, but because, well, remember, she has vowed to hunt down the wizard that stuck her people and their, you know, the other people with whom they were feuding on the island that she only just escaped recently, uh, 300 odd years ago. And so, yeah, at this stage in her life, her sort of uber quest over and above everything else of just trying to survive and get by is to hunt down and kill that wizard. And that was in my mind when I came across something really neat in a research book I've mentioned before, Daily Life in the World of Charlemagne. And the quote is this from page 146 of that book. The smith, fusing their metal in a shower of sparks to produce elaborate weapons, was depicted as a sorcerer, a figure to be admired and feared. These artisans were as scarce as they were celebrated. The quote continues, I'll skip ahead, and then I, I like this bit because of my parents being goldsmiths, mentions how a blacksmith named Wieland, a famous blacksmith, had as much skill in working with jewels, gold, and silver as he had in forging swords. When aristocrats wanted some precious object made, they gave ingots and slabs of gold from their store in their castle's chamber to the goldsmith. Yeah, so there's a kind of cute irony to the idea of the blacksmith's skills and what they do being seen in such awe that they're almost seen as like a sorcerer, given that Vo is in the business at this point of hunting one down. I like that a lot. And so I'm thinking that what gets her to the setting of this story, which for some reason in my mind uh, was kind of a, a Syria, kind of a northern Syria, is that after the battle in Monstrously Slow ends disastrously for the Empire that her and her mentor serve, maybe the mentor is dying or he's like, I'm going to go back to the army. And Vo's like, I don't think I want to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe he says, you know, the last news I got from my home where I was recruited for the Empire was that the blacksmith had recently died go there, you know, my family are important there, they could help connect you with that trade and you that would give you a way of earning a living and you would, you would live far enough away from the people who know you in the Empire that you could probably slip under the radar and not have to be a soldier anymore. So, okay, that's how she gets there, good enough. How, where am I going to work that into the story? I haven't decided yet, but I have a scene that would make a lot of sense for that. So, okay, so Vo has traveled to this place, she wants to try and start a different life, she still is not really pursuing the wizard too hard because she hasn't really had the option, right? She hasn't had the language skills even really uh, to start with. And then in the army, she learned more language skills and how to fight and how to be disciplined, not just like a big brawler like she is in the original story. 
She also learned the lessons I already mentioned, but ultimately realized like, hey, I don't think I want to serve this big, horrible empire. So she's now got to find refuge and a way to pay the bills again. The realities of life keeping you away from your quest. And here is a guy who has to work a day job talking about a thing he's writing. Hmm. Parallels. Insert mandatory, but not really mandatory joke that is an excuse for me to mention the Patreon, which is found at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel, a great way to support the podcast and the novel and the novelist. <laughs> anyway, so who is going to be the point of view character in this story? Because remember, I don't want it to be Vo. I want you to see Vo through a variety of different people and their perspectives over the course of the first act, maybe even longer, but definitely this first act. Well, I was thinking, why not be Loverboy? Why not be the guy that she falls in love with? Which leads us to the obvious question of who might young Vo fall in love with? At this point, I think she's about 21, uh, maybe 22 at a stretch. Well, you know, don't have to be too exact here. Well, I would say someone who feels the same as her regarding the importance of acting in good faith. Someone who also craves, you know, meaningful and final resolution to life's problems, who also believes in a just world way of thinking, uh, you know, you do a thing, you should be punished, that's how it works, is perhaps uh, also a craftsperson like her dad, or maybe is, ooh, and I underline this, a scholar, and impresses her with how different he is from most of the people that she's known so far. He should be comfortable with who he is, and... Yeah, maybe instead of being a tradesperson like her parents, maybe the connection uh, is that he tells stories and maybe even sees in her a legend in the making, question mark. <laughs> and if he's a curious person, then she can not only relate to him, but also appreciate his asking her about herself. That also works out for me, Mr. Writer over here, because that way I can have an excuse to have a character just say what their deal is as another one asks them about themselves. Yep, a little trick. Ultimately, I know I really want to make you like this boy so that you care if and when he's in trouble in this story. So yeah, the whole thing about making someone likable, sometimes it is a good note. <laughs> Thinking more about the whole blacksmith as sorcerer thing I just uh, blabbered about a moment ago also helped me figure out another important character for this. Remember I mentioned the whole, you know, aristocrats will bring precious metals from their holds to the blacksmith so they can make something cool for them because, you know, the blacksmith doesn't have a vault full of materials. Also true in real life of goldsmiths. Uh, a lot of people in the village where I grew up seemed to see my parents had Aladdin's vault in the basement. Sorry, thieves. They do not, and never have. <laughs> not that that stopped five-year-old Oliver from telling outlandish lies to other kids at the bus stop about why he didn't have any brothers or sisters, which was a little strange uh, in that village at that time. Unusual, anyway, by the numbers. Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. Apologies to anybody who I convinced that the mob had killed my brother because my parents would not give the mafia their gold. Yes, the Canadian Rural Mafia wants gold. <laughs> anyway, the aristocrat who brings precious metals to Vo the blacksmith to make something out of them. I'm thinking, what if he's the villain? Yes, what if someone upper class is a villain? There's something I've never gone to before. Ah, whatever. It's uh, pretty traditional in sword and sorcery. It feels uh, pretty okay to have a scheming noble type guy. Okay, well, what's his whole villainous thing. Well, see, this comes back to the title, The Boy and the Blacksmith. You see, there is a misdirect going on there. You would assume, quite fairly, that the boy is who the blacksmith, which you know is going to be Vo, uh, falls in love with, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, no. 
I'm going to ruin that right here, right now. To me, the boy would be a younger boy, a younger brother, let's say, of the person that Vo is in love with, who finds themselves in a calamity which sparks adventure as then the boy must be rescued. And I'm thinking maybe the aristocrat, for reasons at this point, I figured out, we'll get to that in a moment, ends up kidnapping the boy. Hmm. Maybe we open on a shot of Vo working the hammer, our uh, POV, you know, lovey boy loving her, thinking of how she came to town, and how the smithing really elevates the status of the village, you know, back to where it was before the blacksmith, the uh, previous one left or died or whatever. Yeah, all is well and great. And then the aristocrat has stolen the boy. Oh no, now what do we do? Yeah, okay, all right, I got the beginning of some kind of action here, some kind of plot. Obviously this needs to be fleshed out, but I like the idea of an aristocratic villain. I like the connection with the blacksmithing thing. Okay, let's keep going. I see here my earliest idea in the Denim Notebook here uh, was that the aristocrat might flee towards his iron mine nearby with the boy after Vo deals with his bodyguards, question mark, and as he knows, he has many soldiers there to, you know, carve up Vo like a Christmas turkey. Thus, the, the race would be on to deal with him slash rescue the boy before he gets there, and Vo needs Loverboy to come with her as she doesn't know the train. All right. This ends up changing, but I think I'll share it here with you now because it's, you know, the initial sort of shape of a plot, maybe, beyond Vo is blacksmith and boy is there she loves. Right. Then I had to put the notebook down for a while, and sometimes this happens. You get distracted by life, and in the meanwhile, I had something come across my radar on Twitter that I thought was a pretty neat thing, and I want to have it worked into this story somehow, if only because I really strongly agree with it. That thing on Twitter was a tweet, of course, by at Tom McHenry. Spelled like it sounds, a neat guy, does a lot of cool comics, and he also watches a lot of movies and has thoughts about them. Here is one of those thoughts taken from a thread he tweeted about the Terrence Malick film Days of Heaven starring Richard Gere and Brooke Adams. All the dipshit sex scene in film discourse makes me grind my teeth, but where are the movies that have even the erotic charge of Gere washing Adams' calves in the river here? Seeing just playful want and hunger for a person's body in even small gestures. Where did that go? Now, of course, like any broad statement, there are exceptions. You can see stuff like this in To Pick a Good Movie from Recent Times, A Portrait of a Woman on Fire. But yeah, by and large, you don't see this very often in mainstream films. You know, look at any of the romances in any of the Marvel movies. None of them are particularly deep and certainly lack anything what you would call erotic or filled with playful want. I'm not looking to write erotica, but I would like this to feel real. So I make a note of this and decide that, like, you know, I want to have a moment or moments like this with that kind of playful want. That really makes me think of young love. Playful want. That's, that's nice, those two words together. And it's no secret that a great deal of storytelling comes from two competing wants. Which brings me back to sort of the base tension of this story which is that Vo, you know, has dedicated her life to hunting down that wizard and killing him, and broadly speaking, wants to be a capital H hero, but that's not very compatible with being a blacksmith and settling down with this lover boy. So that's the tension. We know she won't stay because there are more adventures. It's not the last chapter of the book. So what's interesting is why won't he leave? And... What exactly gets us to the point of decision with her going, I love you, but I'm out of here. Thinking about this stuff helps me realize that this is not going to be the story of Vo falling in love with this guy. 
we don't have a lot of time. We have approximately 5,000 words. If we have her falling in love with him and then, you know, it's ultimately about how their relationship ends. Ah, you know, that's a pretty fast relationship and it's pretty hard to believe in the depth of their feeling as much as young people do sometimes really get into each other real quick. And older people, frankly, it happens. So again, like rewinding a tape, I find myself coming back to that opening moment. We open on Vogue content. You know, she's been here for a little while. The falling in love has happened and she's in love and it's great. And she's the fill-in blacksmith and she's contemplating staying to make a life with Loverboy. Perhaps she even feels put off trying to be a hero by the events of the previous stories. You know, the very first one where she escapes the island has some pretty upsetting stuff happen with the blood tornado. You know, the second story was a very confusing series of events for her. It wasn't as clear cut as any of the stories promised her. And the one with war, well, that was a grisly grind that would put you off maybe. So yeah, this is where her head's at. And we see her through the eyes of Loverboy, the boy who loves her as a very young man does. In fact, let's make him even a little younger than her. Maybe he's 19 while she's, you know, like I say, 21, 22. We'll close on Vogue grinning, having saved Loverboy's little brother. And though Loverboy is grateful his brother has been saved, they are also heartbroken because they know that saving his younger brother has rekindled her desire to be a traveling hero. And he can't leave because... He has obligations to his family. Yeah, maybe he even feels like chained to his family, but he loves them. Yeah, which funny enough reminds me of a very different situation with a line I can imagine him saying. One of my favorite lines from Wes Anderson's movies, Moonrise Kingdom, the one about the two middle schoolers that run off together away from their respective home situations to be in love and you know, the boy is an orphan, the girl has parents that drive her up the wall, and she loves reading fantasy stories where the main character's parents are dead or otherwise removed from the picture, which sounds great to her with her annoying parents. And she says to the boy, the orphan, oh, you know, you're so lucky that you, you know, your parents are gone or out of the picture. And he says, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Weirdly, I could see... Vo saying, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about, to Loverboy, who would himself perhaps say, oh, you're so lucky that your parents are dead. But okay, I've got a beginning and I've got an ending. Great. And I just need to think about, you know, what goes on between those two points exactly. Well, this brings me to some of the making things a little more cohesive point in my outlining, where I got to tell myself some basic things like, this is the story. What is the story? It is the story of Vo's first true love and her first victory as a quote-unquote hero, the latter driving her from the former. Cool. What is the plot, the actual sequence of stuff? Well, that the plot is, you know, following the kidnapping and rescue of Loverboy's younger brother. Right. The perspective would be third-person limited, kind of a camera sitting over the shoulder of Loverboy, and we can hear and see his thoughts, but nobody else's. The tense will be passed, that, you know, the easiest decision in all these outlines I'm doing. But how about theme and thematic statement? What is it about? What is it saying? These are always good things to know, especially because if I have a better idea of what I want to say, then I can better craft how I say it through scenes and plot and dialogue and so forth. 
I spent some time scribbling a bunch of different possibilities, mostly coming out of the central tension of the story with, you know, Vo wanting to be with the boy and thinking about settling down, but also was still wanting to be a hero. After a bunch of scribblings and aborted little fellows, which is what I call themes that didn't work out, <laughs> uh, I got to what felt like the most appealing thematic statement, which I felt was telling a story about what you want won't make it true right? I mean, ultimately, wanting something isn't enough, and rationalizing that want to yourself doesn't make that want any more likely to be gratified. So with Loverboy, I like the idea that what makes him, or part of what makes him fall in love with Vo is very much the qualities that he knows will take her away from him sooner or later. And so he has been telling himself a story about how he'll charm Vo into staying with him in the village forever. Meanwhile, Vo has been telling herself a story about becoming a big hero. And lately, she's been tired enough with that to experiment with telling herself a story about her being happy to settle down with Loverboy. Both of these stories turn out to be kind of false for her, though the first one seems to win out at the end of this short story I'm telling. Okay, well, the little brother is almost more of a MacGuffin at this point than a person. He's just a thing that drives the story as an object that's threatened or whatever. But what about the aristocrat? What about the villain? Well, I like the idea of him using something he had Vo make, maybe like a kind of weird curved knife designed for sacrificing little boys. <laughs> he doesn't tell her that, of course. And with the little brother as trade, perhaps he plans to bargain with a bizarre wizard or some other magical terrible thing. Let's get some weird magic into this, right? Uh, so he wants to bargain with this wizard thing to make the story he, tell the aristocrat, tells himself about what he wants to come true. Ah, see, thematic statements helping me tell the story. Okay, well, what does he want? Well, the cliche would be that the aristocrat wants power, and I did think about that a little bit, you know? I want to take over the kingdom or whatever. But maybe really, uh, instead of ruling or whatever, what he wants is for his wife to love him not how she loves him, but how he wants her to love him. Ah, perhaps a bit more relatable to the common reading man, woman, or they, them. And shades of what Loverboy and Vo have going on, naturally. Yeah, I want the aristocrat to metaphorically do what it is our Loverboy and Vo need to avoid falling victim to, which is trying to pervert things by forcing what they want to become true, which nobody can really do except good old wizards and whatnot. I mean, that's what magic is, right? It's making something that shouldn't be, that isn't what things are, into what is. And perhaps we can still get some kind of like kingdom power play business in here, just not from the aristocrat seeking power via sacrifice. Perhaps instead what he wants here makes him vulnerable to being misled. Perhaps a rival noble, I've been saying aristocrat when I should be saying noble for the time period this is, oh well, a rival noble could take advantage lying to him about some wish-granting witch or sacrificial pit directing uh, our aristocrat villain guy to disgrace himself by kidnapping a small child from a village he rules that the rival lord wants to have, and leading the aristocrat to a trap 
maybe a witch or sentient deadly mushroom patch, I wrote here, uh, and or some hired killers waiting to slay the Lord and the boy who would know, you know, kind of what was going on alone, away from others, far away from any witnesses so that the noble and the killers they've hired can control the narrative. Yeah. Ooh, I like this because now the villain is tragic. At this point, I felt the story really coming together, so I spent a page just figuring out a few questions, like would Vo and Loverboy choose to expose the other lords' scheme after they figure it out? How would they figure it out? All that kind of stuff. And then I thought, yeah, you know what? It's time to do the story beat list. You know, start to finish, what are the broad strokes of what happened? This has so far manifested usually in me writing like a few scribbled notes over the course of a page or two and then trying to keep it to like one line of the page for each story beat, maybe around a dozen beats, give or take a few because whatever, right? I mean, as many as I need to get a story from beginning to end. For this one, I got excited. <laughs> I got real excited. I mean, I, I love all these little babies I'm outlining and sharing with you via these podcast episodes, but... For this one, yeah, I don't know, man. I think I just hit some sweet spot in the brain and I ended up writing something far more detailed. So here it is. For a third and final time, I will ask you to rewind yourself to Loverboy walking through town to greet Vo at the end of her day's smithing, introducing the setting and our protagonist. Then, ah, Vo, beautiful Vo. There she is doing her smithy magic and looking great doing it. Remember, our point of view is Loverboy here. <laughs> Ah, the aristocrat arrives to pick up his dagger thingy. Anyway, then we have the Richard Gere, Brooke Adams kind of thing, you know, sort of playful want, a little sort of sexy times in the sense that, uh, not that they straight up have sex, <laughs> but that lover boy is a bit playful in how he helps her clean up as if she's reached the end of her day of smithing. And she is too. Maybe she dabs some ash on his nose or whatever. I don't know. We'll figure it out later. These are the broad strokes. But yes, playful want. Nailed it. Then, while that's going on, we have the classic Little Brother Interrupts. Maybe he comes by the blacksmithy. Uh, you know, he's always uh, somewhere he shouldn't be, you know, complains Loverboy. Anyway, it's dinner time, guys. Come back to the house. And it's going to be kind of a nice house. Some sort of, uh, let's say, um, burger. Some kind of, you know, B-U-R-G-H-E-R. -E some kind of merchant's home. If only to explain why Loverboy is educated enough as he is to be a scholar in the making. This brings us to the next big scene that I realized could do a lot of heavy lifting for me. Dinner. Dinner time. Who's at dinner? Mom, dad, little bro, Vo, and lover boy. Lover boy being the middle bro. I like the idea of the mentor from the army story that preceded this, Monstrously Slow, being a much older brother who has gone off away from the family in the way that middle bro will choose not to. As I've said, our story takes place after Vo has been around for a little while and her and Loverboy have already fallen in love. And to my mind, she's already been accepted by the family or certainly met them a couple of times. So this isn't like, you know, ooh, first time dinner with the parents. It's just it's it's dinner, you know, but you, the reader, will be meeting the parents. And then there is even talk of a wedding being planned for Vo and Loverboy. Maybe local religion says no sex until marriage. And this is part of what encourages our young heroes to get together. Bo makes it clear her faith says otherwise. Uh, you know, remember I mentioned she has sort of a, a religious uh, all-mother gardener kind of thing going on that she was raised on. 
And, you know, maybe they have some saying like seeds must be planted or something. I don't know. We'll come up with something better later. Remember, this is the outline stage. But that's a faux pas, but a horny one that delights and embarrasses Loverboy. Oh, yeah, let's get a little more of some of the playful want at the table, something kind of fun. Then we get a reminder of little bro's nature as he gets into something he's not supposed to. Dessert, let's say. Mom scolds him, then scares him with a tale of a horrible thing in the woods, which doesn't work on him. He's basically fearless, but it helps us introduce whatever horrible thing in the woods uh, is that the aristocrat hopes to make a deal with. Then maybe attention shifts back to the dad, who points out that one of the heroes that Vo idolizes was actually quite chaste, and that maybe she should follow her idol. I myself here, I'm thinking of the woman uh, knight Bradamante from Edwin Spencer's The Fairy Queen, although her chastity was a much broader concept than just not having sex. I also like this because maybe Dad has been making an effort to get to know Vo, right? This gets that across, which is nice. And then maybe Vo has a response that, you know, chased in that context wasn't, uh, you know, entirely had to do with sex or not even necessarily meaning it, more of a heroic restraint and not just giving in to, like, you know, killing people left, right, and center as a way of solving problems. We get some kind of, like, playful, scholarly back and forth between her and the Dad, which is nonetheless painfully awkward as it comes down to the whole idea of whether or not dad's kid and her are doing it or gonna do it soon before they're married. <laughs> Wanting to talk about anything but sex with his parents and partner in the same room, etc., Loverboy, while well, he knows his dad hates the neighboring lord, so he wrenches the conversation away over to that subject by being like, yeah, I hear lord so-and-so did something today, and it works. Dad rails about politics. It's clear he does so often, establishing how frustrated he is by their lord being friends with rival lord who sucks, despite rival clearly not meaning well to their lord's people. Their lord being the villain I refer to as the aristocrat, which is something I keep doing because I'm dumb and I need to stop doing it, but I'm not re-recording this whole episode. So maybe then mom or lover boy, you know, they dismiss dad as thinking everybody's up to no good. You know, what about this, that, or the other thing? And then as mum and dad debate, the volume of the scene kind of drops down and uh, we focus on Vo and Loverboy, who are in themselves focused on each other much more than the political conversation. Then we cut to them having fun sneaking out of the house, or maybe Loverboy sneaking out and then picking up Vo from the barn where she sleeps. She's not allowed to sleep in the house because they're not married yet. Yeah, okay. And they sneak off to go make with the lovey touchies. <laughs> <laughs> Which raises up an interesting question. Has Vo had sex before this story? I'm inclined to think she got a lot of those kinds of firsts out of the way before she even left the island, before we even met her. So, yeah. We'll say her and the boy at least fool around. Maybe they have sex. I don't know. But the point is that they have the intimate touchy-touchies, as all adults call it, deep in the woods. And whenever that is wrapped up, Vo wants to sleep in the open air as it's such a nice night. Loverboy has doubts, but what, is he going to say no to her? He loves her, so okay. Later, whether it's just a bit later in the night or maybe very early morning, certainly no later than like breakfast time-ish, but I think before then, they will be awoken by the sound of the little brother's cries. The aristocrat has him, has a knife to his throat. Loverboy, worried little bro will get his throat cut, wants to follow quietly and wait for an opportunity to save him. Vo is not good at sneaking, you know? I mean, 
don't know, maybe she is, she's big, but then how many raids did she take part in on the island against the people that she feuded with? Something to think about later. Then again, uh, you know, she could be a little sneaky at this point because she has no armor or weapons. She did not bring her chainmail or her warhammer for this. Why would she? The important thing is that they follow the aristocrat to the dark site, the place that feeds on little boys or whatever and makes deals with people. Okay. Definitely want to make it spooky, yet kind of natural. I don't like the idea of making it seem man-made. I definitely, yeah, it's going to be some more, more more nature kind of weirdness, right? And the aristocrat holding his knife to the throat of the now gagged little brother makes his plea, you know, and this is with Vo and Loverboy, you know, hiding in the bushes nearby, watching the scene. This will fill them in, as well as the reader, on the aristocrat's motivations. You know, he wants his wife to love him the way he loves her instead of the sort of maybe colder relationship they have, or maybe just straight up she expresses love her own way, and he wants her to express love the same way he does. And he thinks if he kills this kid as an offering to this dark, terrible place deep in the woods, he will get what he wants. Hearing his plea is not only some lovely exposition filling in you and Vo and Loverboy on what's going on, I see this changing Vo's mind about being able to learn how to love Loverboy the way he loves her. Ah, yes, because while she does love him, she doesn't really actually, yeah, maybe she has some doubts about loving him enough to give up her whole life to be with him. Then maybe Vo desperate to act. I mean, she's still Vo. She's impatient. She wants to solve problems and resolve them. Yep. Uh, She finds a decent, let's say, fist-sized rock on the ground, best weapon she can find, and reveals herself to be like, you know, you stop that. And the aristocrat, you know, brings the blade close, then draws it back, holds, holds, looks stressed, and the aristocrat chokes. He can't, he can't do it. At this point, Vo and Loverboy leap into action together to save the bro, except then... It turns out there were more people hiding in the bushes around here. Yes, a pair of hired killers. They leap into action, dissatisfied that the aristocrat has not killed the little boy. It was at this point that I got a little stuck. And I just literally wrote the words, now what? <laughs> and then I thought, well, okay, well, what, are, what, what do I want here? I want the aristocrat to die. I want Bo and Loverboy and Little Bro to live. And the hired killers, well, I think we could have one of them survive, perhaps. But resolving this just with a fight scene that we know Vo will win is boring. However, it's very important Vo saves the day, as that's what will send her off into the next story, what will galvanize her, what will tell her maybe she can be a hero. So I wrote myself three little questions here. First one, how can Vo's character save the day as opposed, you know, how can who she is save the day as opposed to her fists? How can Loverboy not be just like a bump on a log here watching Vo act? You know, maybe he grabs little bro and pulls him away and little bro is captivated by the violence Vo inflicts on the villains. Loverboy is surprised by how awful it is. Not at all like in stories. And then I wrote, you know, can we give the killers any depth here or are they just going to be a pair of guys in like black medieval peasant gear with daggers and mustaches to twirl? Now, you heard me basically answer the second question as I was asking it, but the first one and the third one, the first being the most important, how can Vo's character save the day? How can who she is save the day? I still don't have an answer to that. At some point, you just got to move on, especially because I kind of knew everything I wanted to happen after this crucial point. So I thought I should get it down. I write... Anyway, (laughs) big letters, 
Bo saves the day. And little brother is like, I guess the stories of this dark, terrible place in the woods that it's full of, let's say, bloodthirsty mushroom men weren't true. But then Loverboy could be like, and yet the mushroom patches here were fed blood anyway from at the very least the dead aristocrat, perhaps a dead killer or two. I like that, by the way, because it helps make the scene just feel faintly ambiguous. I mean, we know all the human stuff, you know, the conniving and whatnot that led to this situation. But ultimately, the dark place got fed blood. And so is the dark place actually a very uh, manipulative, powerful force? Let's leave that up in the air. It's more fun that way. On the way back into town with little bro and perhaps one of the killers uh, captured, maybe we can kind of foreshadow that Loverboy sees where all this is going. Maybe they pass through the woods, the part of the woods where they made love and slept, and it looks less glamorous in the daylight. More like the peak of their time together than the first day of the rest of their lives together, right? Then in town, Vo is celebrated. A little brother thinks she's great. And he picks up an improvised weapon and offers, like a stick or whatever, and offers to be her squire. Because, yes, you see, in the last story of the first act, a story called Disgrace the Stone, I wanted the POV character to be a kind of squire, even if he's not actually called that a sidekick for Vo, who by that point has become something of a capital H hero like she set out to be. And I outlined that story maybe a year before I continued with where Vo goes after she leaves the island. I outlined the end of the first act before doing any of the middle stories, such as this one. So, you know, am I a big fat genius? I'd like to think so, <laughs> but not here. Here, I basically had set something up and I saw a way for this story to lead into that story that is cool, but also just works as its own ending, right? Like if you just read this story, not having any idea what was coming next, and you're like, oh, the little brother says he'll be a squire to Vogue, who's become the hero she wanted to be by saving him, that would be just like a sweet ending. Never mind continuity, right? But if you read the next story and you see him show up and they've been traveling together for a couple of years by that point, cool little reward the important thing is that that was me just going oh neat i can join some stuff together not that i made this story bend to continuity i felt i had to have going into the next story the next story squire could have been from anywhere but as it works out Bo is going to have a third story with one of these three brothers right the oldest one uh, by far was the mentor in the previous story lover boy middle brother in this story youngest brother as squire in next story didn't plan it, came together, felt natural. I like it. Hopefully you like it too. So yeah, little bro's like, I'm going to be your squire. And Vo feels the call to adventure. Vo decides to take the captured killer and use what they know to expose the neighboring lord, the rival lord, for what he has done here. But lover boy isn't that kind of person to get involved with this kind of thing, you know? He's like, hey, uh... I love both of you, my little brother and uh, my milady. Uh, I would like you to just stay and to not rock the boat. I mean, with the aristocrat dead, his rival will get what he wanted anyway. So why risk incurring the rival's wrath? The other lord and Vo would answer, well, because with that kind of lord, you know, he'd become your lord. What might he do next? And maybe Loverboy here gets kind of desperate and he's like, hey, well, I mean, our, our love, you and me, you know, saved my little brother, basically, right? I mean, how can you abandon our love? Because 
If not for their love, they wouldn't have been in the woods uh, otherwise to have heard the boys' cries, right? Now, I appreciate that saying, hey, we had sex in the woods and that's how everything worked out okay, so how can you possibly dump me? Uh, is not the best argument, but remember, he's desperate and he's 19 and he really wants what he wants to just be true, but he can feel it slipping through his fingers, which is, you know, he wants it to be true that she will stay and be with him forever, but yeah, and that's plainly not happening. And then the conversation, you know, maybe she runs out of knowing what to say to him. It's just kind of like, ah. Uh, and then other villagers come over, you know, a constable maybe, and Loverboy gets separated from Vo by the throng. You know, she said she'd, maybe she said she'd think about staying. But though Loverboy is now looking at her, telling himself she will, he really wants that so bad, but he knows she won't. And we have an ending sort of shot that I hope will roughly mimic one of the opening ones or the opening one of seeing her doing what she's supposed to be doing in his eyes at the beginning, being a blacksmith, being settled and local. And then at the end, we have him seeing her having done and being about to go do more of what she really wants to do, which is be a hero. She seems to be true to her nature, and that nature means not being with him. The end. Yeah, yeah, that feels pretty good to me. Of course, it needs to actually be written. <laughs> uh, and there's those questions in the middle I want to answer. But this feels like plenty to go off of for writing the actual story. And I think when I come back to it to do that, after I've outlined the whole rest of the novel, I'll probably be able to answer that question in the middle about how Vo's character can end up saving the little brother, not her fists. After that, I spend a page doing things I've mentioned in the previous two outlines, where I kind of ran through things that are not conflict and seeing if they are represented in the story, like relating, finding, losing, bearing, discovering, parting, and changing. I also kind of reviewed various types of conflict to see if I had more than one, worked out okay. I made a note about the setting for future Oliver to figure out because, you know, the previous story was loosely inspired by a Roman Empire era conflict, and I imagined its POV guy related to this story's POV guy as brothers, so... And we saw him as having had uh, the older brother having had to leave his home in not Syria. And then I asked myself, but do I really want to make this a world of real Earth analogs? And the answer is no. No, I do not. So I suspect at some point I'm going to have to do a bit of world building, just enough to be able to string it all together in my head. I don't know about going full like big Tolkien-esque maps as much as those are really cool to see. Um, but yeah, so I make a little decision about the setting. Like this will definitely not be just me copy-pasting Syria. And then I realized, oh man, I got so excited outlining the story, I never really broke down Loverboy beyond what I need him to serve as in the story. And I could probably get away with that, but I find I often learn neat stuff that feeds into the story by doing a full breakdown. So weirdly, that was the last thing I did, and I'm okay with that. You know, maybe I broke the format that I have come up with for myself to make these stories, but that's okay. I think it's really important not to be a slave to formats or theories or formulas or whatever, especially when they're your own that you've cobbled together. Speaking of going against what you normally do, normally I think my urge would be to now do the detailed character breakdown thing for you, but I am looking at the length of this episode thus far and this is feeling long enough. So instead I'll just say that I did do a three-page character breakdown and I did learn some neat new stuff about the character which will funnel into the story that you will eventually get to read. In the meanwhile, I'd be curious, based on the outline I've given thus far, how do you imagine Loverboy, who I have not named yet, I suspect that will happen when I come back to this story and I 
figure out more details about the culture of the area that this is set in and that he is from. Yeah. What kind of guy do you think this is? I'd love to hear from you either by email or yell at me over on Twitter or comment underneath the blog post for this on the website at soimwritinganovel.com. I'm also curious, do you think this is still a love story? It's not about Vo falling in love, but it's important in the sense that it's about her choosing whether to stay with or turn away from love. I must admit, I don't have a lot of experience writing love stories, so I'm a little unsure. Yeah. In the meanwhile, we're moving onward and upward to the conclusion of Act 1, which will be next week's outline episode, Disgrace the Stone, where Little Bro gets to be the POV character as Vo's squire, quote-unquote. After that, I see us getting into some more interviews. I have at least two lined up as of this recording. I'm hoping to get more. I'd like to do kind of a brick of interviews, so to speak. Partly, let's be fully transparent here, to give myself more time to outline the middle of the book, which is quite large and weighty before I start talking about it, but also to break up the rhythm of things. I think like 16, 17 consecutive episodes of story outlines might get a little monotonous. So yeah, we'll take a break after the end of part one, but we will of course come back for part two and eventually three of the novel. Yeah. As ever, thanks for listening because honestly, me having to articulate all this stuff to tell someone else, to tell you, has been really helping me figure out bits and bobs for these stories that I might not have thought of otherwise. So yeah, thanks. So I'm writing a novel? Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it. Leaving a review on iTunes and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. And I like the idea that he's comfortable with who he is, which also fits into the whole... Yes, it fits into the whole meow. (laughs) Thanks, Sam.